0: So, there is one theological truth that is agreed on uh, across cultures, across time, and across the world. Do you know what it is? Um, It is that something is broken. That there is a crack in everything. That things aren't the way that they're supposed to be. There's a a British author and um, apologist, a guy named Francis Spufford, and he wrote a book a couple years ago called Unapologetic. Unapologetic. Why, why despite everything, Christianity can still make surprising emotional sense. And in this book, he talks about how today the word sin has lost its meaning. Um, he says that now it's always associated with sex and chocolate and ice cream and cocktails. right, Or some combination of these things. And it basically means indulgence. right? Sin basically means indulgence. It basically means something that's enjoyably um, naughty. Um, So, he's British, he uses the word naughty. So, for most Americans, for most of us in America, sin is something that's that's too silly, too trivial to worry about, right? If you're actually worried about something in your life, you'd use a different word or phrase. You'd talk about an eating disorder, or an addiction, or abuse, or corruption. Um, And Spuffer goes on to say that if I say the word sin to you, you'll corral me among the enemies of ordinary joy, You'll think that I'm bizarrely opposed to pleasure. So the people who use the word sin as something other than enjoyable naughtiness, um, as a culture, we have this sort of visceral response to them. We think, or we rather we feel, that they're probably actually enemies of our joy. And so Spufford offers his readers a different word for sin, and he names it. The human propensity to mess things up. But because he's British, he doesn't say mess things up. He he, he uses the F word. Um, (laughs) Human propensity to F things up. He's British. Um, And he says, he uses this phrase because sin is not just our tendency to stumble and screw up by accident, but it's our active inclination to break stuff. Our active inclination to break stuff. And by stuff, he means our promises, our relationships, um, the things we care about, our own well being and others, as well as material objects. And the human propensity to mess things up is bad news, and like all bad news, it's not very welcome. Especially if you let yourself take seriously the implication that we actually want to be destructive. Um, we actually want the things, the destructive things we do. That they're not just accidents that keep happening to poor little us, but we're they're part of our nature. That we are truly cruel, just as we're truly tender. That we're truly loving and at the same time truly likely to take a quick, nasty little pleasure in wasting or breaking love. And what Scufford is getting at with this, with his little phrase, the human propensity to mess things up, and this is actually much closer to the biblical um, word sin than the way that our culture uses the word sin. And sin is the cause of all the negative things that we feel as humans. Um, It's the cause of our guilt, our fear, and our shame. Our sadness, all the things that are the opposite of the joy that we long for. Well, this semester, what we're going to be doing during this time on Tuesday nights is we're going to be reading the Gospel of John together. And um, my hope is that as we read and we encounter Jesus, we will see him as the answer to some of our fundamental questions as humans. Tonight, my hope is that we'll see Jesus as the answer to this most fundamental problem the problem of our sin. And his answer is that into our lives of sin and death, Jesus brings a kingdom full of joy. Into our lives of sin and death, Jesus brings a kingdom full of joy. Um, So we're going to read from the Gospel of John now. And I would tell you uh, to turn in your your bulletin that I printed for you to look at that. But um, I have a propensity to mess things up. And I forgot to get the coffee center by 5 o'clock, so you guys don't have bulletins tonight. But it's going to be up on the screen. Instead. So this is, this is John chapter 2. Um, this is the word of God uh, for you tonight, and God gives it to you in love. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine, and Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you uh, for this, your word to us, and pray now that you would help me, um, uh, Lord, that as I speak, that um, you would enrich our minds and enliven our hearts that we would see Jesus and see him as the one who comes to us in joy. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So i am um, you already heard a Tim Keller announcement, but to say I'm thankful to Tim Keller, I'm, I'm borrowing a lot from um, stuff I've, that he's taught me for this sermon. Um, And uh, I want to give you a brief outline. We're going to be talking about how Jesus is the bringer of joy, um, why he is bringing joy, and how he is bringing joy. So first, Jesus is bringing joy. And I think it would be good for us to set the scene of what's happening in John 2. So in the first chapter of John, Jesus calls his disciples, his first disciples, to himself. And here at the beginning of the second chapter, the first thing he does with them is he brings them to this wedding, um, this wedding feast that he was invited to. Now, in ancient and in traditional cultures, they put far more emphasis on the family and the community than on the individual. This meant that um, meaning in life was not found so much in individual accomplishments, but in your relationships to your spouse or your parents or to your children. And so marriages were not primarily for the happiness of two people getting married, but instead existed to support the social fabric of a community that you lived in. So this meant that weddings and wedding receptions were a huge deal, much bigger deal than they are for us, because each wedding was a public feast for the entire town, because marriage was about the whole community and not merely just the couple. And because weddings were such a big deal, they went on for at least a week. And so Jesus, his mother, and his disciples are at this wedding feast, and the wine has run out. Now, this would have been a huge problem at a wedding feast. Um, the family who was putting on the party um, just didn't have enough wine, um, which was the most important element in an ancient feast because they didn't have water um, to drink because water wasn't able to be kept clean. So wine was what you had and what you served at a party. And so when the wine runs out, the party stops. And Jesus turns water into wine to keep the party going. And the key to understanding the story is the last verse. Look at verse 11 with me. If you can read that, um, you've got better eyes than I do. Um, he says, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. The, transfer, the transformation of water into wine was a sign. The sign is a symbol. It's a, um, a signifier of something else. And this is saying that the act, this act is a sign that reveals Jesus' glory. Jesus didn't have to exercise his power at a wedding, but he did, and this was the first sign that he did in order to reveal his glory. And we know that first impressions matter. Um, In 1984, the year I was born, um, Apple, which we now know for iPhones, uh, they revealed their first product, um, which was that Macintosh computer. I guess it wasn't their first product, but they revealed the Macintosh computer in 1984, and it was this commercial was nationally aired on television only once. It was during the third quarter of the 1984 Super Bowl, and it, the the commercial, if you haven't seen it, um, it it won a number of awards for its um, for its cinematography and direction, but it shows this the sort of sea of monotony of people in black and white sitting in a theater watching. Uh, what looks like a totalitarian dictator on the screen. And as they're sitting in their monotony, this woman runs in um, with uh, red running shorts and a white shirt. She's holding a hammer, and she swings it around and throws it into the screen, and the screen explodes, um, freeing these men from their captivity to the dictator. And then these words fill the screen. On January 12, Apple released the Macintosh computer, and you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984. So um, they're capturing this Orwellian, George Orwell's in his book, 1984, this vision of the fear of what 1984 would be like, but rather that Apple will offer this liberating future. And even though it was only shown once, um, because of its powerful imagery, this this commercial created this frenzy. Every news outlet covered it, and it's estimated that it reached almost 50% of every American household um, in the U.S., and we get how brilliant this is, right? As a new company, they had one chance to make a first impression, and they nailed it. Now, the story that we have tonight is Jesus' first, first impression, his, his chance to make a first impression. This is the first thing he does in public. And now, if you were Jesus' PR guy, how would you have him enter the public eye? How would you have Jesus enter the public eye? Um, maybe you'd have him heal somebody who was sick, which he did. Or maybe you'd have him raise someone from the dead, which he did. Or maybe you'd have him drive out demons, which he did. Would you have him do something flashy or profound, or at least something gritty, right? Um, So why would Jesus decide that his first public move, the thing that shows the world who he is, is to keep a party going in an obscure town north of Jerusalem? Why would his first miracle, his first supernatural act, be something so seemingly inconsequential? Well, in verse 9, we're introduced to the master of the feast. And the master of the feast is basically the MC for the wedding. He's the master of ceremonies. He's the one whose job it is to make sure that the wedding happens, the feast happens, that the food's on the table, right, that the band is good to go, that there's enough wine. Um, It's his job to make the party great. And when Jesus changes the water into wine, he's saying, in effect, I am the master of the feast. I am the Lord of the banquet. And then he uses these, in this story, he uses two powerful images to reveal this to us. Um, and the first of these images is wine. Now, all of the, good, all the things that God has given us, um, he has given us for his own glory. Everything in this earth exists to bring God glory. And the things that are the most powerful, the most potent, that contain the greatest capacity to reveal God's glory and draw us into the worship of God are also the things that are the most corruptible. Right? If we as humans have been created in the image of God um, to bring him glory, and sin is our propensity to mess this up, um, our capacity for messing things up is connected to the vehicle that we're driving. Um, let me give you an example of this. Um, if I get really good at rollerblading, rollerblading tricks in particular, that's pretty cool, um, and you guys don't think that's cool, but um, and if I wreck and I get hurt, um, but I probably won't do too much damage, right? But if, on the other hand, I get really good at flying an F-16 fighter jet and I'm able to do some tricks, um, so cool, so powerful, and if I wreck, um, I'll die and I'll create, I'll do a lot of damage, right? Uh, the vehicle that I'm driving is, shows the, the capacity for either glory or destruction. And the same is true for wine. As many as you, as you know, alcohol has a great power to destroy, Throughout scripture, drunkenness is a symbol of wickedness, it's a sign of the depths of depravity that we're capable of, and it's explicitly mentioned in the New Testament as something for Christians to avoid. But at the same time, wine has great power for good. In Proverbs, it's a symbol of prosperity. In the Psalms, we're told that God has given it to us to gladden our hearts. And Jesus commands his disciples to drink wine as the central act of their worship in the the Lord's Supper. And finally, it's given as a picture of the joy that is coming at the end of time. In Isaiah 25, the prophet Isaiah gives this vision of what will happen when God returns to set all things right. And this is what he writes On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. Um, In The Lord of the Rings, um, if you're familiar with the books or the movie, there's a scene at the end when Samwise Gamgee wakes up, having been rescued from the fires of Mount Doom, and he sees Gandalf still alive. And he realizes what has happened, and he says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead. Is everything sad going to come untrue? And the Bible says that this is essentially what Jesus is going to do in the end. We're not going to be taken out of this world into heaven, but heaven is going to come down at the end of, the time, at the end of time and renew this world. Every tear will be wiped away. In essence, everything sad will come untrue. That's what Jesus came to do. And that's what the wine is symbolizing in this wedding, Um, The end of reality will be so amazing. The joy will be so incredible. The consummation will be so perfect that even the most miserable life um, will feel, as St. Teresa of Avila said, it will feel like one night in a bad hotel. By producing the best wine, Jesus is saying, I am the Lord of the feast and I come to bring joy. So this means for us, it matters how we use alcohol um, because it has this great power. And God has given it to us for his glory. So if you are a Christian, you need to ask yourself, um, how am I as a Christian using alcohol? Is it for God's glory or am I using it for something else? Am I using it to escape or for my own glory, to numb myself or or for some other reason? Because here Jesus multiplies the wine as a sign of his glory. And his glory here is shot through with joy. So Jesus came to bring joy, but why did he have to bring it? Um, At this wedding, Jesus is going to save this young couple from the shame of having to send their guests home because they ran out of wine. And Jesus does this by filling up the jars that the Jews used for ceremonial washings. Now, Old Testament Judaism was filled with rites and rules and required a great number of cleansings and purification. And all of these existed to point to our spiritual need. They existed to show God's people that God is holy and righteous and perfect, and we as humans are flawed. And if we're to have any sort of relationship with God, something has to be done about our sin. We need atonement. We need cleansing. We can't just walk into God's presence. And by using the jars normally used for ceremonial washing, Jesus is saying to us here that he is here to accomplish in reality what the ceremonial and sacrificial laws of the Old Testament pointed to the forgiveness of sins, the washing away of all that stains your soul. Jesus is bringing joy because in his body he has brought an atonement for sin. All of the Old Testament purification rites point to Jesus, the one who will die for the world so that there can be an end to all that is sad and all that is broken and all that is wrong. And in the place of sin and sadness, he will give joy. Now for most of us, we think that joy is something that we're supposed to manufacture. Or rather, that we think that joy is something that we must manufacture. If we want to expect any experience, we want to have experience any degree of joy in our lives, we feel like we're on the hook to make it happen. Um, now this is Oprah's fault. Sort of Oprah's fault. Um, so a quote I found on Oprah's website this afternoon from Elizabeth Gilbert, who's the author of Eat, Pray, Love... I'm sorry if you like this book. Um, she says this. She says, happiness is the consequence of personal effort. You fight for it, you strive upon it, strive for it, you insist upon it, and sometimes you even travel around the world looking for it. You have to participate relentlessly in the manifestations of your own blessings. So what she is saying that if you is that if you want happiness or joy, it is up to you. And if you don't experience happiness, you only have yourself to blame. And for those of you who are sad or depressed or just joyless, there is nothing more condemning than a white woman who traveled the world eating and praying and loving, telling you that it's your fault. (laughs) Right? That if you want joy, that you have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, put on a happy face because it's up to you. That is the worst advice that anyone can give you. So to answer the question, why is Jesus bringing joy?, Jesus Christ came to bring joy because he's the only one who is able to do it. There's this weird, like, sort of tense interaction in the story between Jesus and his mother, right, where she tells him that they have no wine, and he's sort of short with her. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And we know from the Gospels that Jesus would never say anything he didn't mean. He was never flippant with his words. um, And he loved his mother. So why did he respond to his mom this way? Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. And Jesus refers to his hour a couple other times in John's Gospel. And every time he is speaking about his death. Jesus' hour is the moment of his death on the cross. So his mother Mary says, how awful they've run out of wine. To which Jesus replies, why are you telling me this? I'm not ready to die. Um, Tim Keller writes that when Jesus makes this mysterious statement, it's as if he was looking far away, past his mother, past the bride, past the groom, past the whole wedding scene. And he's seeing something else. He's thinking, yes, I can bring incredible joy to this world. I I can cleanse humankind from its guilt and its shame. I have come into the world to bring joy, but oh mother, I'm going to have to die to do it. And there may be even more going in his mind than this. I said at the beginning that there are two images that Jesus uses here to show us the joy he is bringing. The first is the wine, and the second image Jesus uses here is the wedding. Jean Vanier, who's a Catholic theologian and priest, um, he points out that the first act Jesus does with his new disciples is to bring them to a wedding. Now for those of you here who are Christians, let me ask you this. If you had a friend who recently converted to Christianity and they asked you, how do I figure out what it means to be a Christian? What should I do? What would you tell them? Now, I've asked some of you this question and you had great answers. Um, Some of you said you'd probably give them a Christian book or you'd bring them to RUF or you'd bring them to church with you. But notice what Jesus does here. His first act of Christian discipleship in the Gospel of John is to bring his new disciples to a wedding feast and there he provides an abundance of good wine. What do you think this would have conveyed to them about the nature of the Christian faith? So I know many of you um, and many of your friends grew up in the church, and your friends who, who have grown up in the church and re- rejected Christianity, rejected the Christian faith, have done so often because it's presented to them as a, as a list of rules. Right? If you behave a certain way, you're in. If you don't behave a certain way, you're out. Um, and that it was the, the experience for you was more about sin management than joy provision. The God that you were taught about was, uh, as a kid was the God who was out to get you rather than the God who's after giving you great joy. But here, in this, in this story, Jesus doesn't give them rules, though later he gives his disciples the law of love. Here he doesn't give them rules. Here Jesus invites them to taste and see that he is good. He supernaturally creates the best wine, manifests his glory, and how do the disciples respond? Look at verse 11. His disciples believe in him. And the fact that Jesus did this, um, did his first sign at a wedding, is so important. um, Because one of the Bible's favorite images for God's love for his people is that of a husband loving his wife. Later in the book of John, when the disciples are criticized for not fasting, Jesus says, why should the friends of the bridegroom fast when the bridegroom is still with them? Why should the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is still with them? Do you catch that? Jesus is calling himself the groom. And he does this in full awareness that according to the Bible, God alone is the husband of his people. And in Revelation 21, which is the second-to-last chapter of the Bible, John paints a picture of the end of all things as being a great wedding between Jesus Christ and the church. So to build on that image from Isaiah 25, it's not just a feast at the end of time, but a wedding feast. Heaven will come to earth in the form of a great wedding feast. And so as Jesus sits at this wedding, I'll wager that he was thinking about his wedding. And so his comment to his mom Um, isn't flippant, but rather it's a deep awareness that in order for his bride to be his, for him to embrace his people as his wife, he's going to have to die. For his people to drink the cup of joy, he is going to have to drink the cup of judgment and punishment and death. And so this brings us to our final question. How is Jesus bringing us joy? Jesus is bringing us joy by losing all of his Jesus left the glory of heaven and entered into the humiliation of a lonely and forsaken life. And he went to the cross and died in our place. And we see here that Jesus didn't come here to tell us how to get joy for ourselves, how to save ourselves, but he himself came to save us. He came to die, to shed his blood, to drink the cup of God's wrath so that we might drink the cup of his joy and love. Jesus' death is, centered, is central to the Christian faith. It is the center of the Christian faith. That Jesus would substitute himself for us. This is the great hope of Christians. And the testimony of scripture is that on the cross, God self-substitutes himself for you. He takes your sin, your shame, your guilt, and ultimately your death, and he gives you his righteousness, his joy, his forgiveness, and ultimately his life. This is what Jesus is pointing to at this country wedding. And um, only he is able to transform the putrid waters of the stone jars into good wine. And he invites you to respond as the disciples did. To believe and through faith to receive the joy and life that is yours in Christ alone. Let me end with with one thought. Um, One of my favorite parts of my job as a pastor is getting to officiate people's weddings. And um, as the bride enters the church during a wedding, everyone stands, and what do they do? They turn and they look at the bride. And as a pastor, um, I have a unique vantage point. As you know, a bride on her wedding day, there's nothing more beautiful than a bride on her wedding day. Um, And as a pastor, I have this unique vantage point that I can see the bride, but I can also see the groom. And I can see the look on his face when he sees his bride enter the church. And watch the joy and delight light up his face as he sees the woman who's coming forward to him to marry. Friends, if Jesus calls himself the bridegroom, then he is inviting us, he is inviting you by faith to know yourself as his bride, to know his delight in us as we wait for the great day of the wedding feast. So look at Jesus' face in faith and know his delight in you.